Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. My friends, we are in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, we're moving through the Gospel of Matthew. I anticipate we'll take uh, this week and a few more weeks uh, and we'll finally finish our study of this wonderful book. We've been looking at the life of Jesus. We've been trying to consider our study of Matthew as if we've never looked at these things before. What if we were a guy on the side of the road, a gal on the side of the road, and Jesus came into our little village what would we, how would we respond? What would we think about seeing these things, hearing these things, watching these things happen uh, for the first time? And so for me, that has been just really satisfying. I, I, would, I think I, I could say with honesty that I've read through the Gospels, you know, four times, each one of them, every year of my walk with the Lord now. And so I'm familiar with this story, these stories, but to look at them with fresh eyes is just really good for us, and, and we've been enjoying that. Now, as we have come into chapter 26, we are in the final year, or excuse me, final days of Jesus' life, and we've been looking, and there's been a fast series of events that have been happening, and we've been trying to spend some time considering them. So we saw that after the Passover dinner, in verse 30, Jesus would go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there Jesus would pray, and he would ready himself, and some teachable opportunities came up, uh, and so on. Then we saw in verse 36, after he had, excuse me, verse 47, after he had spent some time praying, that a band of soldiers, 600 men, with swords and clubs and lanterns and torches, come to arrest Jesus, and we spent some time considering that. And now today we pick up just after those events, that event of his arrest, and we read in verse 57, it says, Now then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. We actually looked at this last week, but we'll put, use it for the context. And it says, Now Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside he sat with the guards to see the end. And again, it's not recorded for us in Matthew, but John informs us that before going to Caiaphas's house, that he actually went to Caiaphas's father-in-law's house, Annas, and that there was a trial there. Then after that trial, he goes to Caiaphas's house, and there's another trial that takes place there. There's going to be three trials before three different groups of religious leaders. Annas and a few others, the former high priest, Caiaphas, the current high priest, and a few members of the Sanhedrin, and then the actual legal trial, which took place during the morning hours, during the sunlight hours, before the entire Sanhedrin. So there's three religious trials that Jesus is going to go before, and he'll go after that in front of three political trials. So six trials in a 10, 12-hour uh, span of time, three religious, three uh, political. And I already mentioned to you that each, almost every one of these trials, almost every aspect of these trials was irregular. It was improper. It was illegal. And so we looked at things like the timing of the trials. They weren't supposed to happen at night. They weren't supposed to happen during the feast. Uh, they weren't supposed to happen within 24 hours of the arrest and so on. The location of the trials kind of secret places as opposed to being out in the open at the temple. The false witnesses that were brought and that nothing was done to them. And then ultimately that the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders served as both the prosecutor and the jury. And I, I made the statement last week, it's not very hard to win a case when you're both the prosecutor and the jury. And so all of these irregularities that are taking place in these particular trials. 
And so now the soldiers have led Jesus. He appears before these various people, and we'll pick up in 59. It says, now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is that that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. So look at verse 59. It says, The chief priests, the whole council, were seeking false testimony against Jesus. Shouldn't that be saying the chief priest and the elders were seeking true testimony against Jesus, but you see their intentions right there. It says that they're seeking false testimony. And the reason is, as it goes on to say, is that they might put him to death. So they're looking for testimony that will support their narrative so that at the end of this thing, they can put Jesus to death. Not because they're looking for truth. We're looking for testimony that will help us sort this out so that we can make a decision. That's a right decision. That's not what they're looking for at all. It's a banana republic court. They're just looking for an opportunity to put this guy to death, Jesus, to death, not seeking out truth at all because Jesus was a problem for them. And all the way back, I think it was in Matthew chapter 12 or so, they decided they were going to deal with the problem by putting Jesus to death. And now it's just a matter of how we're going to do it to not stir up the crowd. And so they're looking for false testimony. Notice verse 60, remarkably... They were unable to find at none, or they found none, it says. I always find it hard to believe. How hard is it to go in a back room somewhere and work your story out and come out and lie? I used to be pretty good at that in my day or you know, whatever. My, son, my brothers and I, when we would, I know, my brothers and I, we would damage our house or whatever. We got pretty good at coming up with good stories. But these guys, they can't do. It says they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. What a testimony of the life that Jesus lived, that people that were intent on lying about him aren't even able to come up with lies that would stick about him. What a testimony of the life he lived. Now two do come and they bring a charge that Jesus said he would destroy the temple of God and that he would rebuild it in three days. Notice what it says in verse 60. It says, now this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now that's not really what Jesus said. He said something very similar to that. He included many of the same words that they include uh, as well. But again, what's the matter what Jesus really said? This court's just trying to put him to death, put him to death. What Jesus really said, John chapter 2, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Very close to what they had said, but a very different intention and a very different meaning. Now, John is very quick to add in John chapter 2 that Jesus wasn't speaking about the temple of God, but that he was actually speaking about the temple of his own body. And he also points out that Jesus wasn't saying he was going to destroy the temple, but that they were going to destroy the temple. So he's not actually talking about the temple of God. He's talking about himself. And he's not talking about him being the one doing the destroying. They're going to be the ones doing the destroying. It was in response to what sign will you give us to prove to us that you are the Messiah? And Jesus, I'll put it in different words, Jesus' response is, here's the sign to prove that I am the Messiah. You will kill me and I will raise myself back up to life. I will raise again from the dead, rise again from the dead. And they took that, they heard something else, 
that he was speaking about this temple, or at least that's the story they're going with, that is in front of them there, that he was going to destroy it and raise it up in three days. And so that's the charge. Even though the facts aren't with that charge, again, what, what do facts matter when your goal is to simply stick it to this guy and find a charge that'll stick so that you can have him executed? And so Caiaphas runs with that, verse 62. It says, now the high priest stood up and he said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Is this true, what they've said? Make a defense for yourself. But as you see in 63, it says, but Jesus remained silent. Now, Jesus is on trial for his life. Potentially, these guys are going to have enough evidence where they are going to have him executed. Typically, when people are on trial, you know, you're even at work and people accuse you of something. And no one's going to kill you. They, they might just say, well, we don't like you anymore or something, or they might just say, you know what, we're going to dock your pay, or you're going to get fined or suspended or something like that, and those things are pretty serious, but you're not on trial for your life, and when people bring accusations against you or against us, we're very quick to defend ourselves. No, that is not how it happened, or how dare you say, you know, and we start yelling and screaming and get all worked up as if our intensity is going to kind of nullify the situation or something. Here's Jesus on trial for his life, with a whole parade of people coming in lying about him, and then these guys twisting his words to lie about him, and Jesus remains silent. It's pretty remarkable. It's such an evidence or a demonstration of the restraint that Jesus is willing to exercise because, as it says in another place, his face was fixed like a flint to go to the cross, like a stone to go to the cross. And so he just remains silent through this whole process. The, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that that's exactly how things would work themselves out. That our Messiah, the one who would give his life, the suffering servant who was give, would give his life for others. It says this in Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so Jesus there with all these accusations remains silent. Now that, silent. Now that is until the high priest, notice in verse 63, adjures him to speak. Anyone here ever use the word adjure? Uh, parents to your kids, I adjure you, son. Tell me why you failed that test, you know, or whatever. It's not a word that we typically use. Maybe people with a legal background might use it. But here the high priest adjures him. To, to be adjured is to be put under oath to testify. It is to be compelled to give an answer, forced to give an answer. And so the chief priest here says, I adjure you, answer this question. Old Testament law, Leviticus chapter 5 says this, if anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. And so the idea is if you've been adjured, if you've been compelled to give an answer to a particular question by an official, then you have to give an answer to that question. You have to answer it. And so now the chief priest adjures Jesus to answer this particular question. And so with that adjuration, Jesus says, all right, I'll answer your question. Now, Jesus could have presented a magnificent defense of his being the Messiah. He could have talked about all the wonderful things that he had done up and down Israel in the Galilee region and Jerusalem, the people that he healed, the lives that he touched, the hearts that were changed. 
He could have talked about the wonderful things that he taught and the impact that that had made on so many. He could have talked about the many miracles that he did, even raising people from the dead. He could have talked about all sorts of things to prove his case. And yet he doesn't go there with any of these things. He Instead, he takes this command of the chief priest, I command you, tell us whether you are the Christ or not. And if only this chief priest really wanted to know. You know, if he was sincerely asking, are you or are you not the Christ? The answer could have been probably something very, very different. Notice Jesus' answer. He says, you have said so. I am. I am the Christ. Now notice he adds, but I tell you from now on, and this really nails it down. Yes, I am the Christ, and I'll tell you this. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Yes, I'm the Christ, and I'm going to come in glory, God in glory, and you will see that from now on uh, is, is the statement that he makes there. And sadly, the chief priest, rather than being like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how wrong I was. I'm so glad I asked because I was, I was way off track, but now that you've cleared, cleared it up for me, sadly, the chief priest has already made up his mind that Jesus is not the Messiah, that he is not God in the flesh. And so he follows that up, and he says, since he says this man in his mind this is not the Messiah, he has committed blasphemy, because he has equated himself with God. He says, the high priest tore his robes. He said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. You know, I look at this and I think, if you already knew your answer, why are you asking me? You know, we, sometimes we go and we ask, these, and people ask questions or whatever, and you start to answer it, but yeah, but, but that, and then they're fighting you on it, and you're like, you know, why are we even talking about it? You already got your answer. What do you need my opinion for in this particular matter if you're not going to do anything with it? So the guy already has his answer, and so he says, since Jesus said he was God, he must have committed uh, blasphemy. He asked the question so that he could bring a charge against him. And after bringing the charge against him, he could have him executed. And he knew fully what Jesus' response was going to be. And so uh, strategically, properly, I guess you might say, he asked the question in front of the 70 members of the Sanhedrin. So now you've got 70 witnesses to the blasphemy that this man just admitted to or just made. And so it's a slam dunk now. He committed blasphemy in front of all of us. We don't even need witnesses anymore. We're all witnesses. And so now we can have him executed. It's interesting. There are those that claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be God. We know people think he is, but that's just because his disciples over the years kind of added some things. They took their devotion to the Lord a little too far, so on and so forth. But Jesus never claimed to be God. The chief priest thought he claimed to be God here. The Sanhedrin, who was going to convict him, uh, and uh, sentence him to execution, thought that he claimed to be God here. Earlier on when he was in the garden and they said, we're looking for Jesus, he said, I am, I am he, essentially is what he said. They all fell back because he was claiming to be God. He says in another place, I and the Father are one, linking himself up to God. He claimed to be God. Jesus claimed again and again to be God. It was very clear. It's not something that was added centuries later. And so here you have this instance here where Caiaphas says, and the Sanhedrin says, are you, essentially, are you God? He says, yes, I am. And so it says in verse 66, Caiaphas saying, well, what, what then is your judgment, Sanhedrin? And they answered, he deserves death. 
Now, Jesus had already been struck that evening, uh, punched that particular evening. Now the mocking and the degradation begins. Now they begin to humiliate this man, Jesus. We see in verse 67, it says, Then they spit in his face, and they struck him uh, again. The idea is multiple times. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Jesus' face, in some way or another, not necessarily able to see, but now they just begin to, to throw in the mockery and the humiliation. Part of the death, ultimately, this is, this is the Romans. These are the Jewish people. But ultimately, part of the death of the crucifixion is just as painful as it was physically, was emotionally how painful it was because it was just a humiliating way for a person to die. And it was meant to be. And that's why they put the sign above the cross that said what the person did so that anybody else that would see this person dying on a cross would commit in their own heart, I will never do what that guy did because I'm not going through what that guy went through. And so here they begin to humiliate him, mock him. Who was it that hit you? And again, what a remarkable demonstration of divine restraint that the one that at any moment could have just paused time People in mid kind of punch, like you see in movies or whatever, could have paused time and stopped everything. Could have called down 72,000 angels that we talked about a moment ago and threw everybody back, like some sci-fi movie, back against the wall and just kind of put everybody in their place and said, now that you know I can do that, let's reconvene. You know, he could have stopped it at any moment and he doesn't. And he just continues to allow himself, and really I think it's a fair word, to be pulverized this particular evening and to be mocked. None of us like to be mocked. But it's one thing to be mocked by people that are, so to speak, greater than us. You know, so you're playing a game of basketball and you you get beat. And then people are like, you know, they're making fun of you. And you're like, well, they beat me. What am I going to do kind of thing? It's another thing when people that are clearly lower than you, like my children mock me when we play basketball. Yeah, hey, you're my children. Now they're up here. You're my children or whatever. It's another thing when people that are clearly lower than you, like the Lord is higher than these people, are mocking you. And you have the power to stop them and you don't. And so Jesus continues to demonstrate such divine restraint. Now, while that is all happening, there's other events that are taking place simultaneously. And Matthew shares those with us. And so we'll read from 69 on. It says, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. Excuse me. And a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I don't know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, hey, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, Peter denied it, this time with an oath. I don't know the man. Swear to God. After a little while, the bystanders came up, and they said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them. Your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. One of the other gospels says that simultaneous to the rooster crowing, Jesus is brought into the courtyard area from wherever he was into the courtyard area where Jesus is. And as the rooster is crowing, Jesus is entering in and Peter's eyes and Jesus's eyes lock. And Peter leaves the area and he goes out and he weeps bitterly. 
Now, we've already taken notice of sort of this slow digression in Peter where he first came to the gate and then he's inside and then he's standing over with the crowd by the fire and then he's sitting down by the fire and there's sort of this digression in getting more and more comfortable around this mob of people that are forming to destroy the Messiah. And now we see sort of the result of when that happens. When we gradually allow ourselves to sort of drift and become desensitized to things, how we're setting ourselves up for a fall. And so in verse 69, we read that while he's sitting there, there's a servant girl. Now, this, the word for girl means a little girl, 10 years old, 9 years old, something like that. And here you have this young little girl, servant girl, you know, cute probably, and she comes up and she says, Essentially, hey, do you, you're with this Jesus uh, from Galilee, aren't you? Now, there's no reason to think, you take all the other gospel accounts here, there's no reason to think that this first servant girl that comes is, has anything going on. Like she's not trying to be like, oh, let's get him too or something like that. It just seems like she sees Peter and she says, hey, are you with this Jesus guy? Almost as if she's saying, what did he do? You know him? What's going on? Can you fill me in? So there's nothing nefarious about her where she's trying to get Peter. My point is, there's no reason Peter needs to lie here. There's no reason he has to defend himself or anything like that. It's just a little girl. He could have said to her, go away, kid, you bother me. Remember that Bugs Bunny episode? Go away, kid, you bother me. He could have just simply said, go away from me. Or he could have said, yeah, I do know him. And that was it. But Peter here immediately, inexplicably, denies. He says, I don't know what you mean. I don't know this guy. Instantaneously, his flesh rises up and he responds by lying about knowing Jesus. I've been in those circumstances. I've been a Christian for a long time. And, you know, the Lord has done a good work in my life and he's changing certain areas or whatever. But there are still times in my life when, like, the police lights come on behind me or something and the, the, the intention is to go past me or whatever, but I immediately look and, you know, did I turn on red and I shouldn't or did I speed or what did I do? And immediately the lie begins to form in my mind. My wife, she's having a baby. I got to get, you know, or something. Immediately I begin to think, what am I going to tell the cop when he comes? Instantaneously the flesh rises up. Our spirit is willing, as Jesus said elsewhere, but that flesh is so weak that it rises up in those instances, and we have to put down our flesh. So as the cop's walking up to our car, we have to tell ourselves, I'm not going to lie about it. I'm going to take the consequences of whatever it is that I did. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to respond as I would as a spiritual man. And yet the flesh is so, it so much wants to rise up. Peter's does that here. Matthew tells us, it's not in this passage. No, it is in this passage. Matthew is the one we're reading. He tells us now in verse 71, a little while later, Peter, he, he picked up, he moved to another section, I guess, of the, this little courtyard, and another servant girl, different one, another servant girl takes notice of him. And she declares that this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Now this feels a little more accusational because she's telling other people, she's not even asking Peter, she said, hey, everybody, this guy was with Jesus of Nazareth as well. Now, this time, Peter takes it a step further, and he takes an oath attesting. He swears to God, I swear to God, I don't know the man. And so he, as it says uh, there, he takes an oath. He, I do not know 
the man. You see this, prog- this digression, a simple denial, an oath of denial. Verse 73, after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. So now Peter's chit-chatting with these people. If I was afraid I was going to get lumped in with Jesus, I would have kept my head down and been quiet. I would have left by now, I I think. But Peter here is committed. I'm going to stay. I'm going to be here. He's chit-chatting with the people. Now it says, certainly you are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Third time Peter's confronted of being a disciple of Jesus. This time the group's convinced because his rough Galilean accent So down in Jerusalem, it was a little more prim and proper, and every word was pronounced correctly. You know, in the Galilee region, it's like someone from South Philly or something. How you guys doing, you know, and this kind of thing. That's my best, there you go, accent I got there for you. You know, there's certain people from certain areas, and you're like, you're from Staten Island, are you? Because you can hear it in their their language or whatever it may be, or their... the way that their words come out. And so these Galilean folks, their voices stood out. They were easily distinguishable. And so the bystanders reason essentially, come on, man. Here you are in Jerusalem, and you're sitting outside of the trial. You're clearly a guy from Galilee, and you're sitting outside of the trial of the famed rabbi from Galilee, and you're telling us you don't know him? Come on, who are you trying to fool? And so they call him out on this, and and Peter has already sort of denied. Then he has taken an oath of denial. So now he's got to prove to them, look, if I was really a friend of the famed rabbi of Galilee, would a friend of the famed rabbi of Galilee talk like this? I don't blankety-blankety-blank know this man. Would one of his disciples talk like that? I'm not one of his disciples. And he, he begins to curse and he begins to invoke even a curse on himself. He essentially says, may I die and go to hell if I'm lying to you. That's what he says. Again, his flesh is trying to convince others, I don't know this man. You're wrong, all of you. And again, Jesus walks out at that moment. Their eyes catch, the rooster crows, and Peter flees the scene. But this last denial, it seems, does the trick. And as Matthew points out in verse 74, immediately the rooster crowed. Now, that's certainly an indicator to us that we are getting closer to the morning hours. Sunlight is probably either just about to come up or it's coming up. The rooster is crowing. But it's also a reminder to us of something Jesus had said earlier in the evening. Now, we looked at that two weeks ago, so you may have forgotten. But just a few hours ago, there at the Passover dinner, Jesus pointed out, to Peter, Peter, this night you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And so now, as we see, the rooster is crowing just after Peter has, had denied him. And remembering those words, Peter's devastated because he had failed his Lord. He's devastated, perhaps, because he had failed himself. He was so committed that he was going to do what he said he was going to do, and he has failed in that commitment. Jesus had said to him in the garden, I referenced it earlier, your spirit is willing, Peter, but your flesh is weak. And he now, Peter, recognizes that. My flesh is weak. I was committed. And again, it doesn't help that he catches eyes with Jesus, whose face is already, no doubt, beginning to swell. Already, no doubt, there's already blood that's forming on his lips and around his eyes, and they're probably blackened, and his lips are probably swollen, and so on. And he sees his Lord... And he couldn't even say to a little girl, yes, he's my master, I love him. 
And I just want to be with him in the midst of this and do what I can do in the midst of this. And Peter's broken about that. Now, Peter will eventually be restored. But now God's going to use this failure to do some really valuable lessons in Peter's life, to rid him of his self-reliance and drive him to Christ for mercy. Now, certainly, we don't want to encourage anyone to fail in their walks with the Lord. But I would just say this. Some really good things happen after we have failed our Lord. And Peter's going to discover that God uses our failures in our lives, in our walk with him, to accomplish his transforming work in our lives. And so it's when we are in that place of failure and we feel horrible and all we want to do is run out and weep bitterly as Peter does. It's in that brokenness that comes from having fallen short that the mercy of God can shine all the brighter on our hearts where we begin to discover some things about how much we have actually been forgiven. Even if we've been a believer for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, we discover afresh what our salvation actually is. And so here's Peter, he's failed, but in the midst of that failure, the mercy of God is shining all the brighter. You remember the story of the woman that was caught in adultery? And these men, they come and they drag her out and they, they, bring, they don't really even care about the woman or anything or the guy that's called an adultery too. Uh, they don't even care about any of that. They really want to use it to get Jesus. But this particular woman is in count, in, she's caught in the act, she caught in the, she's caught in the sin, but Jesus ministers to her. He loves her. He says to her, go and sin no more. And here this woman discovers mercy after her failure. And she was a woman that loved the Lord very much after that because she realized how much she had been forgiven. Who's going to love the one more? The one who's got nothing to forgive or the one that's got a whole lot to forgive? Jesus asked that question to some people like, oh, I guess the one who had a whole lot to forgive. Yeah, you're right. And so here Peter now realizes just how much he has to forgive. And it's against that backdrop of God's forgiveness that the grace of God can shine bright. It's against the backdrop of that darkness that the grace of God can shine bright. Peter shared this. Now, this is just a few months or so after this event. Peter said this in a sermon in Acts chapter 3. As he's speaking to people, he said, Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Do you think he could have said that the night, after, the night of that sin? When he went out and wept bitterly over his sin? No. There was a process that God did where God refreshed him and he restored him and he poured out his mercy even in the midst of the darkness of Peter's sin. And he knows that experientially. And so he's able to communicate that to others that they can repent of their sin and times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Those are words from a guy that has been there and has experienced it. So none of us want to fail. But in our failures... God can do some really good, beneficial, and helpful things if we let him. We see two examples here, Judas and Peter. Both failed the Lord this particular evening. Judas, as some of you may know, will run out and it will deal with things differently than Peter does. And Peter takes that brokenness and he allows the Lord to restore him and refresh him. I'd encourage you to do the same thing. Maybe this morning you had a Peter-like experience this week where you've let your Lord down, 
where you've said some things, you did some things, you went some places, you got involved in some things that you committed yourself, I'll never do those things, and you did, and you failed. And now you want to, first off, I'm kind of surprised you're here. Because a lot of times what happens in people's lives is, well, I can't go to church this Sunday. I just had this thing happen this week. And we stay away from fellowship. We isolate ourselves from others. We think, I have to go through my penance. I got to suffer a little bit. I got to whip myself like the monks used to do in days of old. And then when God really sees how sorry I am, maybe eventually he'll let me back in. Whatever. The reality is that's not biblical. Come to the Lord, confess your sin, let him wash you, let him cleanse you. So maybe that dis- describes you here. I'd encourage you, let the Lord deal with you. You know, another way we oftentimes deal with God's exposition of our sins, I think that's the right word, when he exposes sins in our lives, we try to ignore it. You've been there. God puts his finger on an area. I say, you know, if I ignore this, if I turn the TV on loud enough, I'll start to forget about it. If I get myself busy enough with other things, maybe the feeling of guilt will go away. Maybe the conviction of sin will go away and I'll be okay. That's not the way to deal with it. The way to deal with it is to confess it as sin, to come to God for cleansing. First John says, if you confess your sins, you're a believer. You confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of your unrighteousness. Who's he faithful to? He's faithful to, ultimately, it it shows up in our lives, he's ultimately faithful to Jesus because Jesus went to the cross to purchase your cleansing, your forgiveness. And so if the father were to say, well, you know what, you've gone too far. I can't believe you would deny me in front of all those people. I'm not willing to forgive that. Well, then the father's not being faithful to, so to speak, the agreement that Jesus and the father made, that he would go to the cross to purchase our salvation and our cleansing. People's, or excuse me, Peter's going to come to that place where he will confess his sins in the coming chapter. He'll be restored. I'd encourage you, if that describes you, be, do that as well. Let's continue. It's starting to get hot in here. What do you say about a window, a door, an air conditioner, something? Uh, I'm sorry, Barb. It's not hot? Okay. Okay. Then we'll continue on. Forgive me. I'm just getting a little worked up. Okay. All right, let's go on to chapter 27. We're going to look at the first 10 verses. Now, when morning came, all the chief priests, the elders of the people... They took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound Jesus and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So again, by the time that the morning has come, you've had three different trials already before religious leaders. Pilate, and we'll talk about him more later, he is a political leader. He's a Roman, uh, essentially governor of Jerusalem there. And so uh, he's going to make his way before him in a few moments. Now, remember, the religious leaders decided that Jesus had uh, committed blasphemy, and the crime, according to Jews, to the Jews for committing blasphemy, was to be executed. The problem is the Jewish people at this time in their history were not an autonomous people. They were under the leadership of another people. They were b- currently being occupied by the Roman Empire. And as such, the authority, the power to execute criminals, in their mind, for violations against their laws, they did not have that authority anymore. And so they had to go to Pilate. They had to get his permission. They had to prove him to him that Jesus should indeed be executed. And so as we see there in that verse, they, they made their decision. Now they take counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And then it goes on in verse 2. They're going to bring him to Pilate, the governor. And before Pilate, that's where the first of the three political trials 
are going to take place. And he'll be going back and forth between different um, political leaders. This is Good Friday morning. The sun has come up now. Uh, and Jesus is going to be crucified by noon of that day. So we're in the last four, four or five hours here. Now, as that's happening, bef- before we look at what happened before Pilate, what we have here is sort of an aside that takes place. This is verse 3. It says, Now then, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, well, what's, it's not our problem. They said, what's that to us? You see to it yourself. You deal with your problem. And so throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, Judas departed and he went and he hanged himself. Now Matthew points out, upon seeing that Jesus was condemned, Judas changes his mind. That Judas wants to undo all that he has previously done. What it says in the King James Version is that Judas repented himself. Judas repented himself. And that sounds promising. I said a little while ago, if Judas at any point during this process here said, what am I doing? I'm sorry. Forgive me, Lord. I repent of that. Would the Lord have forgiven him? Well, here it says that Judas repents himself. That seems promising. Use of the word repented causes us to think he must have repented. Not necessarily the case. It would be great if he did. The reality is that he didn't. In the, in the, particularly in the King James language, there are two different words in the Greek language that are commonly translated into the English language, the same English word, which is repented. But they mean something very different. So there's one Greek word translated repented, uh, which is in, in the English here, changed his mind in the ESV. One is a change of choice, a reversal of moral purpose, a change of life. That's what the word repented, oftentimes translated repented in English, means. A change of choice, a reversal of moral purpose, a change of life. The other English word, or uh, Greek word that is translated in English repent, is, means an emotional change. That is, to feel bad about something, or to show regret. So one is a change of life, a change of moral purpose. I'm going a brand new direction. The other one is to feel bad about something and to have regret. Those are very, two very different things. And the word that is used here uh, to describe Judas when it says that he, had a, he changed his mind, it's the word there that is to show regret, that he felt bad about something. Judas is sorry about his actions, and he's remorseful for having done what he has done, but he does not come to the place of repentance that brings about forgiveness. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he'll talk about two types of sorrow, two types of repentance, two types of grief over stuff that we have done wrong, and he calls them godly grief and worldly grief. 2 Corinthians 7 says this, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So you can see there's a distinction between types of sorrow. There's a godly grief and there is a worldly grief. You think about, for instance, folks in prison. I would suspect to you that every person that is sitting in prison, or suggest to you that every person that is sitting in prison, or 95%, there are some people like, you know what, I'm glad what I did and I would do it again. 
But most people, I would suggest to you, are sorry about what they've done. Specifically, that they got caught doing what they did. That would go back and say, you know what, I wouldn't have done that. I would have planned it out a little better, and I would have instead did it this way. They're sorry about what they've done and that they've gotten caught. But what true godly repentance is, the kind that leads to forgiveness, it goes beyond wishing you didn't do something, wishing you got caught for something, and it enters into a realm of realizing just how wrong that the action actually was. That's godly sorrow. Peter will demonstrate that when he repents. Judas, on the other hand, he just wishes he could go back and change what he has done. He's sorry for what he has done. He's sorry for how things have turned out. He's sorry that a guy that was indeed his friend and who he knows is innocent was beaten and pulverized and mocked and all the things that he was going through, he's sorry about how things have progressed. And he wishes he can go back and he can change things. It's in that regret that he wishes he could just go back and undo what he has done. So he goes in, he says, I have sinned against innocent blood. Look, here's the money. Let's call the whole thing off and pretend that it never happened. We see that there in verses 3 and 4. And if only we could go back and undo our sin. If only we could go back and undo our sin when the consequences of that sin are fully played out. How often, if we could just simply, okay, so we're about to make a decision, and we say, you know what, hold on one second here, and we could go to the videotape, and we could fast forward, and we could see the consequences of this decision, how they're going to play out, and then based on that information over here in the future, we could decide whether we really want to go down that path or not. How often, if we could do that, we would not make many of the decisions that we do make. And how often people that are now find themselves in this place would just go back and they would change that particular thing. I would have never done that. I think it's a valuable thing to consider when you're at work or whatever and you're, you're just sort of flirting a little bit with that new lady, that new guy that's there. I'm not going to go too far here. Obviously, I'm married. I wouldn't go too far. You know, it's kind of fun. It makes you feel good. It's happy or whatever. And you begin to go down that path. And if I could show you that down the end of that path, you're going to commit an affair and you're going to break up with your wife or your husband and your kids are going to experience the pain of that breakup, would you do it? Most of us, I, I hope all of us in here would say, no way. Absolutely. You think about those little corners you cut with the law. And you just make a little bit of, you know, you bend it here, you kind of ignore it there. And if I could tell you that that little thing that you think isn't that significant now and you're going to bend the law here would eventually land you in a prison cell and cause your wife to say, you know what, this clown, I'm done with him, and your kids to be embarrassed or whatever it may be, would you do it? You probably wouldn't. If you could just fast forward or if you could go back and undo what you've done, most of us would like to do that in certain instances, but the reality is we can't. And we can't go back and change things. Judas here, he wants to go back and he wants to change things. And he discovers a very hard lesson. Number one, you can't. And you can't go back and undo what's already been done. He's sown what he has sown. And now he has to reap the consequences of what he has sown. The second thing I think is so interesting, Judas learns that all these chief priests that were his buddies a few hours earlier, patting him on the back, you're a good man, Judas, to his face, no doubt Judas had the money in his pocket like, fool, 
They're talking about him behind his back. All of these guys that were his good buddies who wanted to work with him before are not interested in having anything to do with him now. It's not our problem, man. Why don't you get out of here? And so Judas, disgusted by the whole thing, he throws down the 30 pieces of silver. It says he throws them down in the temple. Now remember, the temple was a building and it was a compound of land. And all of that was referred to as the temple. The word that is used It describes the inner part of the temple, the part that only the priests could go in. Not the Holy of Holies, but that part where the priests would go into on a regular basis. That's the part of the temple. So he breaks the rules, and he bursts through the doors or whatever, and he throws down the money into that inner portion of the temple. And then notice it goes on to say, throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went out, and he hanged himself. He departed, he went out, and he hanged himself. Such a sad ending for a fellow that had a front row seat to all that God was doing and how God sent forth his son into the world to save the world, and yet he missed it. And he can't live with that, and he can't bring himself to godly repentance, and he goes out and he destroys himself. Now, it continues, and it says, Now the chief priest and the elders... No, no, I'm sorry, that's my words. The chief priests and the elders, now they got a problem. We look at verse uh, 6. The chief priests take, taking the piece, uh, pieces of silver, they said it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So now you got this money here. None of them want to pick it up and put it in their pocket. It's not their money, really. And so they, they don't want to do that. But they, you'd say, well, then just give it to the church. Well, they, they say, well, we can't. That's blood money. Notice the hypocrisy of all of this and the irony of all of this here. They, They say this, look, we have no problem with taking money from the treasury to see to it that an innocent man is executed, but it would be wrong of us to put money into the treasury that was used to have an innocent man executed. You see, these people, what's going on in your minds? And these people here, the hypocrisy, verse 7, so they took counsel, they, brought, uh, they, brought with, they bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Unable with a good conscience to do anything with these funds as far as giving back to God, so to speak, they instead go out and purchase a field from a local potter that would be used as a burial place for strangers. Now, a potter's field was essentially a junkyard that would form kind of in the city. It was usually next door to the potter, potter's house, and the potter would be doing his thing, and he'd mess up on certain pots or whatever, and he would throw them out into the field because that's not going to work. I'll just start all over, whatever. And pretty soon the, f- the field was filled with um, shards of pottery and so on, and the field became good for nothing. And so it became a junkyard, essentially. And so what these guys do is they say, look, we are obligated by law to provide a burial place by Jewish law, to provide a burial place for strangers that come into our city and die within our city. And so let's just use the money to buy a field for that. And so they buy this particular field uh, as a burial place for strangers. Verse 9, notice, this was then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord had directed them. Once again, Matthew is careful to point out that none of these things are outside of God's sovereign control. 
that even in this decision that has nothing to do with Jesus, not like he said, you should use the money for a pottery field or something, has nothing to do with Jesus. Even in this decision, God's, uh, pr the prophecy of old, the Old Testament is being fulfilled. And Matthew is quick to point that out. He says, as it has been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Things aren't spinning wildly out of control. Everything is falling exactly into place as God foretold of earlier. Again, Jesus said, the Son of Man goes as it has been written of him. Even down to the point that they used the money that was used to betray him that just so happened to be returned, and it just so happened to be returned by being thrown down into the temple, and it just so happened to be used to go by a potter's field. The Old Testament predicted it. Let me make one final point here, a point of really of knowledge more so than application for your life here. Uh, there, there's an interesting thing going on in this phrase. Again, notice verse 9. It says, Then was, was, was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Then it goes on to quote the prophecy. They took 30 pieces of silver and they bought a potter's field and so on. The problem is the Bible doesn't record the prophet Jeremiah saying those words. You have to go to the prophet Zechariah where you read word for word those words. And so Matthew says the prophet Jeremiah said what in actuality the prophet Zechariah wrote down. And so we got a problem. Matthew made a mistake. Matthew must have been confused or something here. Now some say Zechariah, Jeremiah, close enough. It was one of the ayahs. What's the difference or whatever? I don't even know who they all are anyway. But that doesn't work for scripture. Close enough might work for government work or something like that, or you know, playing quates or something. That doesn't work for scripture. We can't just say close enough, it's no big deal. And so we gotta see what's going on here. Did Matthew make a mistake and say Jeremiah when he meant Zechariah? And that could happen, certainly so, but not with scripture. Did Matthew make a mistake? Is that what's going on? Well, there's a few um, possible explanations. Number one is that there is a copyist error. error. And so, you know, we've talked about this before, that the original manuscripts of our Bible, we no longer have in existence, or maybe they'll find them somewhere, sometime in a cave somewhere. And what we have are copies of the original. You're like, well, a copy of the original, how can I trust it? It is tremendously um, trustworthy. We spent some time looking at that. When we had Charlie Campbell with us, he spent some time looking at the evidence pr for proof and how the different copies all verify the same thing. You can go in, you can do some research into that as well. So the first one, though, is that there's a copyist error, that Matthew wrote down Zechariah, and a copyist made a mistake and wrote down Jeremiah. That's one possibility that could be. We know that 99% of the copies of the originals that we have agree with one another, but 1% of the time the copies do disagree with one another. Never on something like this one over here says you can get to heaven by being a good person, but this one, all the rest say you have to believe in Jesus. Not those kinds of discrepancies. Things like this one over here says 16, this one over here says 36. Things like that. Things that don't really matter, quite frankly, that there are copyist errors. So we know that that is the case. So perhaps that's what's going on. Second possibility is that Jeremiah indeed did speak these words, but that it was the prophet Zechariah that wrote these words down. And so that Matthew is quoting something everyone knew Jeremiah said, and here we are 2,000 years later, and we can only look at what's written. 
And so Zechariah wrote something that Jeremiah was known to have been saying. So that's possible. A third possibility, this one to me seems the most plausible. It requires a little bit of understanding of some of the historical information. And so we know that our Old Testament is comprised of 39 books. Some of those books were originally put together. So there wasn't a 1st and 2nd Samuel, there was a Samuel, and there wasn't a 1st and 2nd Kings. And so that probably brings the number down to 30, 35 books, or whatever. Old Testament, 35 books. The next thing you should know is they didn't have books. They had scrolls. And so there would be 35 scrolls, let's say, that were there. And I would also add this, they didn't have individual scrolls. So you got a little teeny Zephaniah scroll, you got a great big Psalm scroll, and then a pretty big one Isaiah scroll. Rather, what they would do is lump certain books together in the scrolls, and so you would have had the scrolls of Moses, which would comprise the first five books of our Bible. And then you might have the scrolls of the books of history, and the scrolls of the prophets, and so on. Well, there's a lot of prophets. We have five major prophets, 12 minor prophets. It covers a lot of the portion of Scripture. And so those prophets were separated. And they took the name of the first prophetic book in that scroll. And so if Isaiah was the first book in one scroll, that was called the scroll of Isaiah. And if Jeremiah, which was, Jeremiah was the first book in one of the other scrolls, that was called the, called the scroll of Jeremiah. And Zechariah, our book that we know, is in the scroll of Jeremiah. And so Matthew here, when he is saying, as Jeremiah says, perhaps is referencing simply it's in the scroll of Jeremiah that it says these particular words. Here's my point. Don't lose your faith over this particular issue. There's an explanation for why Matthew says Jeremiah when in actuality we have it in our Bibles of Zechariah. And I think it's important for us to consider those things. I don't want to gloss over and hope nobody notices. Oh my gosh, that might be a script. I hope nobody notices that. We, we live in intelligent faith. And you can dig into these things. There's answers for these things and conclusions for these things. And so you can rest assured that your faith does not need to be rocked. Amen, friends? That's where we're going to leave off today. We'll pick up in chapter 27 next week. Let's pray. Hey, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for coming, sending your son to this earth to suffer and die on our behalf, Lord. And we haven't even gotten to that point in the account, and yet we already see all that you allowed, your, you submitted yourself to in the mockeries and in the beatings. And, and Lord, there's a, uh, a sort of a heaviness that forms over our hearts about these things. My goodness. How sinful am I? How sinful are we that there was no other way but that the creator God of the universe would become one of his creations and subject himself to his creations so that we might be saved? And Lord, as we look at Peter here, we, I don't think anyone in this room would judge Peter because, Lord, we all are, uh, we've had those experiences and we failed ourselves, and ultimately we failed you, and we've been broken. And Lord, you have been so kind, and you're so gracious, Lord, to restore us back to the place of relationship. Lord, we often want to punish ourselves for our sin. 
when you're ready to forgive us. And so, Father, I pray for anyone here that's going through something like that. Would you just refresh them, as Peter would later say this morning? Bless them, Lord, with the joy of their salvation, the cleansing that comes as a result of knowing you and confessing our sins. And fill all of our hearts with the wonder of our salvation, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Sermon Podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.